Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Mark Sisson. Hey everyone, Mark Sisson here with the Primal Blueprint Podcast, coming to you from the beautiful Primal Blueprint Podcast Studios in Malibu, where every day is an awesome day. Um, Again, getting a lot of questions from uh, readers sort of all over the place recently, uh, stuff that I I can uh, address them in Mark's Daily Apple sometimes, but sometimes I like to hold them aside and get a guest on that I can have a discussion with and kind of, you know, go all around the issue and and delve into it and look at the all of the tangential stuff that's uh, that's happening as a result of you know what is the essence of the question but what does the question lead to and what's the rabbit hole that goes down so with that in mind I brought on my good buddy Rob Wolf today uh, he probably needs no introduction here I'm going to read off the back jacket of his book Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist a health expert and the author of the New York Times bestseller The Paleo Solution and more recently Wired to Eat. Um, I know Rob uh, from pretty much day one in my paleo experience. Rob is probably, you know, ground zero more than just about anybody else here. I mean, we can talk about Mel Connor and and uh, Lauren Cordain and um, guys like that. And Rob trained with, interned with Cordain, I guess would be the word. But uh, Rob is the guy who I have looked to as a as a mentor in this paleo space. The guy is is uh is as well educated as anybody I've ever met and anyway without further ado how you doing Rob I I'm doing pretty good I I always feel like I should be taller than 5 foot 9 with an introduction like that but I'm <laughs> I'm doing the best I can given my genetic uh uh you know what the bag of genes that I've got the bag of genes I love that it's going to be a new t-shirt or something um and how's the family they're great they're great uh girls are getting big we just got back from a little bit of a a trip and the girls had a ton of fun on that. So everything's good at the Lazy Loba Ranch. Nice. Um, yeah, I keep thinking about uh, the Lazy Lobo Ranch and uh, the the wide open spaces up there uh, and the low taxes. <laughs> the, the zero taxes. Oh, yeah. Just to rub it in. Rub that in a smidge. Yeah. The zero yeah. taxes, which is going to be even more significant <laughs> in the next couple of years. Right. Um, so, you know, just let, let's just riff off a couple of things today. First of all, um, because keto is still fresh on my mind and you have been, you know, we've been we've been in this uh, space talking about keto on various podcasts, uh, our own and others and writing about it recently. What, where are you these days in your own eating style? Oh, man, you know, it's it's interesting because keto was really the gateway drug or the gateway uh, nutritional approach for me in this whole ancestral health uh, eating scheme. And it's kind of funny because I, I just spoke recently at Low Carb USA and uh, the folks are very gracious, gave me a nice introduction, but they were kind of like, wow, you know, Rob is coming around to this kind of keto concept. And it's just 
funny how quickly folks get pigeonholed for one thing. And so like I'm the paleo guy and, and, uh, but I've been a huge fan and advocate of ketogenic diets for literally coming up on, on 20 years here. And, uh, the way that I eat it, it, it's, um, the total macro count, the, the thing that's super important, you know, in this story, I guess, would be the carbohydrate level. And because I do some Brazilian jiu-jitsu about four to six days a week, I have not had success fueling that at the the kind of classic ketogenic levels of, you know, 20 to 30 grams of carbs a day. And so on my hard training days, I, I tend to get in anywhere from 75 to 150 grams of carbs, but I, I'm... I'm generally lazy, and so I haven't been tracking where my ketones were. But interestingly, even at that level, uh, I kind of cycle in and out of ketosis doing that. So it, it's, um, you know, it's still kind of the the gravitational pull for me, and it's the place that cognitively I tend to feel best. And interestingly, uh, even though I'm eating at a carbohydrate level that most people would consider to be low carb, but not necessarily ketogenic, for me, it, it still appears that I'm at least transitionally in and out of that ketogenic state. Well, you know, the biggest question, and, and I think the most relevant question is, how do you feel when you're, you know, uh, 80 to 90 grams of carbs a day versus 20 to 30 grams a day? Do you feel any different one day to the next? I feel better uh, if I'm reasonably sedentary. Let's say if I'm traveling, then I feel pretty good at that kind of classic ketogenic level of, say, 20 to 30 grams of carbs a day. If I'm doing a decent amount of physical activity, particularly this kind of glycolytic-based activity like jujitsu or something like a CrossFit workout or hard intervals, I feel better at that higher carb level. And, and man, it, it, I have people get angry with me. They tell me I'm doing it wrong. They tell me I shouldn't need to do that. And man, I've I've uh, I've really tried to make the other process work. And I'm not saying that other people can't make that work. But for me, this has been the the kind of middle ground of the sweet spot where I don't end up on a carb roller coaster. I, I don't have these hangry events between meals. But then at the same time, uh, you know, I, I seem to have that pop that I need for these really hard glycolytic sessions. Well, you know, I guess I'm trying to lead you on here, but what, like, what does it matter that you're not in ketosis if some days you're having 80 to 100 grams of carbs and you feel great, you're doing your Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and other days, you, you, you know, you're sedentary and you're having 20 or 30 grams of carbs. Like, what does it matter what your ketone level is as long as you have, you know, sort of tightered your carb intake to the, the intended output for the day, and you feel good within what I would call that zone, that keto zone. You know what I mean? It's like, that's kind of where I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is like, somebody says, well, geez, you're doing it Rob. wrong, Rob. No, you're, you're actually, you're doing it exactly right, because there's nobody says, once you go keto, you always have to stay keto, right? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. And this is uh, one of these, um, you know, maybe cognitive biases or, or you know, uh, uh, poor bits of logic in that we because we have something really nice and definable like ketones. And, and if you hit a certain level, then we could, are considered to be in nutritional ketosis and whatnot, that you can really start trying to orient the whole band in that direction, but it, it's not necessarily the the thing that produces the best effects. And, and so that's a fantastic point. You know, I, I think when we look out at some of the potentiality around um, ketones, 
they have some interesting effects. They uh, inhibit myostatin. There appears to be some really potent anti-inflammatory characteristics, uh, some potential uh, uh, neurodegenerative uh, reversing kind of capabilities. Um, I think a lot of people, particularly your your followers, will probably be savvy to the fact that uh, exercise produces the release of this stuff called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, but a hat tip to Ken Ford at the Institute for Human Machine Cognition, but he shot me a paper, and interestingly, you need ketones to be released during that exercise session to be able to get the signaling to uh, to get the effects from the, the BDNF. So there's definitely some laudable characteristics to ketones, but again, circling back to your point, there's a lot of different ways to get those those ketones released, even a, a pretty high carb intake person, no one that we would really consider a fat burner, if they're doing some really hard physical activity, they're producing ketones. So it, it's a, a really good point that you make. And you've always been a big fan of the of the concept of hormesis and the effect that mm-hmm. uh, that a hormetic stressor has on the body. So so you might look at something like being in ketosis once in a while. Um, not all the time, but just say once in a while, and 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 from a more hormetic uh, effect, say okay, well if I'm four days in ketosis and I get the I get the the, the effects of those ketones, I get the epigenetic um, uh, mechanism that the ketones will create. Um, then I've got you know I'm getting definitely getting a benefit from that time spent there. On the other hand, um, there's no. There's no reason that I have to spend the rest of my life there or even months at a time. Now, in my more recent book, I talk about, you know, using ketosis as a reset. You kind of reset your metabolism. You spend enough time in ketosis that you upregulate a lot of these enzyme systems. You increase bio, uh, the, the uh, mitochondrial uh, um, biogenesis. Bio. Mm-hmm. You, you know, improve autophagy. You do some house cleaning. You do some DNA repair. But at some point, maybe six weeks or seven weeks into it, you've gotten eighty percent or ninety percent of the benefits that you're going to get, and the rest is just kind of like hanging out in that in that area because because you think it's cool to do so. But there's no there's no real reason to spend the rest of your life um, in ketosis. On the other hand, there's definitely no reason to go the opposite direction to go to three or four hundred grams of carbs a day. So I I like to hang out in what I call that keto zone, which is some days I'm at 30 grams, some days I'm at 130 grams, and to, to be perfectly honest with you, I can't tell the difference one day to the next, and I don't care, and I no longer measure my, you know, I, me- I don't measure my, my ketones, I don't measure my glucose, I don't even measure my macros anymore, um, right. because I feel like I'm intuitively in this place, which is, which is um, kind of reminiscent of a hunter-gatherer experience, which is, and that's the Art Devaney thing, right? That's, that's our right. who who would say, yeah, this ketosis thing, I'm not sure what I think about it. All I know is some days I eat a lot and some days some days I don't eat at all, and that's the human experience. Right, right. And, you know, it, it, art clearly needs such a, a huge bit of praise. Um, the guy has been out ahead of this stuff literally by decades and, and uh, always seems to, to land just about at, at the spot that everybody else ultimately arrives at. And uh, there's a fantastic paper uh, the the title is something along the line "Secrets of the Lack Operon," and it, it talks about this hormetic stress response, and it really makes a pretty compelling case that it, under the ideal circumstances, we should be able to take in some carbs, and that shouldn't crush us, and then we should be able to seamlessly transition into this ketogenic state, and that shouldn't actually 
we shouldn't get the keto flu. It shouldn't be like running headfirst into a brick wall. And what I've noticed in in fiddling with some of the seven-day carb testing, which was actually a part of my second book, is that some people like my wife um, who are very insulin sensitive and seem to be pretty good at transitioning fuels, she really uh, – the, the transition from eating a moderate amount of carbs to fasting, heading into ketosis – it's inconsequential for her. She doesn't have a decrease in cognitive function. Her physical performance really doesn't doesn't change per se. And I think that getting to that spot is a, a kind of a great indicator that you are firing on all cylinders and and you should be resilient at both you know at both of those uh, carbohydrate extremes. I mean that's exactly what the the intent with my strategy for other people is and we call it metabolic flexibility we, we you know it's it's developing metabolic flexibility and metabolic efficiency so that no matter what fuel you are presented with you are efficient and effective at burning it and doing so in a way that doesn't generate reactive oxygen species that doesn't throw off a lot of free radical damage that doesn't cause a lot of you know low carb flu and all of the other crap that goes with it and it sounds like nikki's got that 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 sort of robust metabolic flexibility that we all seek yeah, yeah, and you know, interestingly, some some things that I've been fiddling with is uh, I've been eating more food earlier in the day, and if I have carbs, I tend to have more carbs earlier in the day. Um, I've been really making a, a strong effort to get outside in the sun as early as possible, and during the summer, that's been great. Like I'm I'm out there getting sun on my skin at, at just about a mile high in the high desert at the uh, 6.30 in the morning. You know, now that the days are getting shorter, it's getting a little more challenging to do that. But it's interesting. Uh, this has – so I, I do that big meal in the morning. Uh, I tend to do jujitsu or a workout somewhere between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., and then I typically continue fasting until dinner. And I really try to get that dinner in, you know, somewhere between 4 and 5 p.m. It's a little challenging having a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old, but we we tend to stick to that pretty well. But it's interesting, the the shifting of intermittent fasting in, in a, a way that um, is front-filled with nutrition and maybe uh, taking advantage of that early uh, period of uh, insulin sensitivity in, in the day and then having a period of fasting, having a, a semi-fasted workout, and then a period of time post-workout in which I'm not eating, which, again, this is all straight out of the Art Devaney playbook. Um, I feel really good. I, I'm pretty lean. I'm not Mark Sisson lean, but who, who, who the heck else is? And uh, and I've noticed that I've got more latitude both on that that low carb side and the the higher carb side. Like if I, I push that carb intake up to 150 grams a day, I feel great with that. And historically, that would have you know I would get foggy headed, I would have some GI problems. So that's really been a boon for me, just trying to figure out a strategy for improving that metabolic flexibility. So on a day that um, that you're having 150 grams of carbs, what does breakfast look like? Breakfast might look like uh, so. I've been really kind of geeked out on uh, uh, canned smoked oysters, so I'll, I'll do a couple of cans of those, uh, maybe some sausage, and then I usually cook the girls some sort of a nutty hot cereal, which is taking some some fruit like peaches or apples and blending that with either pecans or almonds, and uh, I use that as kind of the the base. And then I might supplement the the carbs either with additional fruit or like a, a yam or a sweet potato. 
And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm usually gunning for getting some sort of a workout in each day, usually jujitsu. And if it's a really hard session and maybe a hard and long session, then dinner will be a bigger meal and I will do some additional carbs. If for some reason I had to cancel that session that day or it was just a, a very modest session or maybe I just lift some weights, then dinner is basically some protein and veggies and, and a little bit of fat. And so uh, the breakfast, I, I did weigh and measure it a bit just to kind of get some orientation on it. And that breakfast may be north of 1,500 to 1,800 calories. Like it, it's a serious whack of food. But then if I don't really do much the rest of the day, I may not eat much the rest of the day. But some back of the envelope uh, numbers that I have on the jiu-jitsu is a, an hour of pretty intense uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu rolling can be anywhere from 12 to 1,500 calories of activity. And so that's where I will then backload some calories and potentially some carbs to make up for that. Or conversely, if I have a, a lighter training day, then I, I really eat a lot lighter. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and so you're in how many days a week are you going hard? Uh, you know, it, it, I try to plan in two hard days of jujitsu, but when you get a couple of 24 year old police officers that were former D one, like linebackers and stuff like that, it's yeah. not really up to me if it's an easy day that yeah. day. So, you know, that, uh, that is variable, but if I do get a really, hard day and I'm feeling it the next day, then I will actually, you know, I'll say, Hey, I'm training with you and you and you and we're slow rolling. And and so I've gotten a lot better at moderating that, but I try to only have maybe two challenging days a week. And the only thing that I would say really pushes me physically at this point is the jujitsu. When I lift weights, when I do gymnastics, when I do a little bit of low level uh, recovery cardio, None of that has any amount of volume or intensity to it. It is a maintenance program, 100%. And if I do anything in the gym that leaves me the least bit compromised for jujitsu, then I know I did too much. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's. The, I mean that's the that's the new strategy that seems to be the best, which is on your hard days go hard, and on your easy days go really easy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and and on the easy days, it's. It's so difficult for people to get away from that. Oh shit! Well, I got to burn some amount of cal. I got to know what calories I burned, right? And and I tell people when you're going easy, if you're doing a recovery cardio day, don't pay attention to the calories at all. Just do the movement. You know, right. just, just go through the motions. Um, because as you said, I mean, you could. It's so easy to watch those, watch those numbers creep up and go. Well, I'm at two seventy five. You know, if I if I stay on for another two minutes, I'll be at uh, three hundred. And then you get off and you're like, oh shit! I just kind of I trashed my, you know, my recovery for tomorrow's hard day. Right. Yeah. Um, tell me about injuries. Do you get injured at all doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? You know, it's funny. Historically, I've had a pretty good uh, knock on wood, you know, a bit of luck with this stuff. But uh, about a month and a half ago, I got a bit of turf toe. One of my big toe on my left foot got got cranked around pretty good. And I thought it was a, a stroke of genius to um, – put on a pair of old wrestling shoes that I had because then I could train around this turf toe. And the very next day that I trained, uh, I, I did a, a transition, which I do a million times, kind of a turn on knees deal. But the, uh, 
the wrestling shoes are much stickier than my feet are. And I ended up with an MCL strain (laughs) due to to that. And so that's been a six week deal getting and Luckily, there was no separation. I I just kind of stretched the MCL, but it was it was damn cranky. And so I took what was going to be a a low level injury that would limit my movement a little bit. But, you know, if I worked worked with it instead of trying to work around it, wouldn't have been a a big deal. And so I, I traded in the addition of a moderate to severe injury. And now I have both the turf toe and the MCL strain. But generally, I, I've been pretty lucky. And, um, you know, I uh, I tap early when I need to tap. I, I try to develop a very non-attribute based game. And so even though I'm decently strong, have decent cardio, particularly for, for my age group and whatnot, I really try to rely on technique and, and uh, shifting body weight and whatnot. I, I call my my approach to jujitsu sloth, slow, low, old, technical and heavy. And, Love it. And, uh, Love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Hey, and that's a, such a classic uh, response to an injury, which is uh, I'll work around it, uh, you know, I'll, and then the next thing you know, you've got two injuries. <laughs> right. I mean, that right. was my, yeah, and that I, was and my I, life as a runner. Right. Right. Um, so let's see. Um, what else? Oh, I was going to ask you, are, do, are you supplementing with collagen for that MCL? I am. Yes. Uh, the main sources. Oh, and I've been meaning to, to shoot you um, a picture of this. So each morning... Part of the uh, the breakfast ritual is that both girls request their um, muscle mocha, <laughs> and the muscle mocha is made from the uh, Primal Kitchen uh, chocolate co- chocolate and coconut collagen powder. We do some uh, decaf coffee, mix the muscle mocha with that, and then we put a little bit of MCT oil, and it just gives it some uh, uh, MCT powder. And blend all that up, and it gives it some great creaminess. And so I have those. And then uh, literally every day I have at least two of the uh, Primal Kitchen bars. I am a crack fiend for the uh, uh, macadamia bars. Oh, all wow. of them are good, cool. but the macadamia ones are are uh, on another planet. Like I, I could see myself selling my body down in the Mission District to pay for, <laughs> for those things at some point. So, yeah. yeah, That's great. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so are, are you giving this mocha thing to the girls too? Yes. Yeah. They're the ones that request it. And so I actually in my phone, I'm looking at it right now. I have probably 15 photos of the girls drinking the muscle mocha and I need to forward it to you. So, so you can see love, that. Love yeah. to see it. Speaking of which, so I got a question from one of our readers. If you could go back in time, would you raise your children from day one, grain free and paleo or primal? And um, so I think the question is for both of us, but I'll let you start out. So uh, you sort of did though, right? Yeah, I mean, we we introduced uh, grains slowly, and the first one that we introduced, and I mean, this was, you know, maybe uh, it, uh, eighteen months or something. So I mean, it was meat, and then uh, uh, veggies and fruit were were kind of the first things that we tried. So we we still kind of stuck with that low allergenic approach, but uh, uh, rice they've been fine with. We do a little bit of corn, corn tortillas here and there. Um, I do try to keep the girls gluten free just because I, as a kid, I now looking back, understand that I had a low grade uh, gluten reactivity. And then in my 20s, I uh, suffered a gut infection. I caught Giardia in Mexico. And then ever since then, I've been fairly broken in that regard. And so uh, we generally eat gluten free. But there have been three or four times that the girls have had some pretty clear gluten exposure. Like we were at a a birthday party party. 
we didn't know that there were going to be cupcakes or something like that. And so we didn't bring some gluten-free alternatives. And so they've had some, and it doesn't seem to affect them. Uh, but we have talked to them about, hey, you know, gluten can cause problems for some people. And, it give, you know, for data, it gives them a tummy ache and everything. And so this is kind of the the reason why we do this. Um, every Friday, we do uh, pizza night and we use the Udi's gluten-free pizza flour. Um, you know, it, it, it's in a lot of ways, I'm glad that I had kids uh, a little later in this whole development because I think if it had been earlier on, I could have been maybe a little over the top and a, a bit of a zealot. And if people want to be tighter with what they're doing, that that's just fine. I'm not saying it's it's right or wrong, but I really do try to be sensitive about you know uh, uh, creating issues around food and making it prohibitive or or what have you. And so we really try to talk to the girls about you know there's some healthier foods and some not healthier foods if you eat. Too much of the not so healthy foods, then you're going to feel bad and you won't be tall and you won't have pull ups. Both girls at three and five have a pull up. Yeah, um, Zoe wow. has two, Sagan has one, and and uh, they're super proud of that, you know. And so I'm like, if you eat good, you'll have pull ups and you'll be strong. And and so that's been the way that we've tackled it. And I, I kind of use a speed bump method in which uh, we try to start with the the good stuff, the meat, the veggies, the fruit, the sweet potatoes. And then if if they do a really good job on that, and I tell them this, I'm like, hey, if you're not a pain at dinner, yeah, I'll make you a, a half of like a, a gluten-free peanut butter and jelly sandwich or, or almond butter and jelly sandwich. And um, sometimes I'm horrified by that because I think about, oh, my God, refined carbs and glycemic load and gut dysbiosis and everything. But, you know, the girls that are at the uh, 98th percentile in height, they're at the 30th percentile in weight, which seems to be pretty – typical of these kind of paleo-esque uh, kids. And one thing that I have been really keeping an eye on, the the frequency that they have of exposure to the, to the meals like this, we don't see behavior changes. So they don't go from pretty well-behaved to demon spawn as a con- consequence of the, the frequency and the dose that they're getting on this stuff. And so I've been using that as a bit of a, a weather vane to, to tell if we're, we're doing okay, or if maybe we need to dial things down. Very interesting. I, I love hearing that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, important that, that the, um, you, you lay it out early as to the importance of food, but, but not the, Supreme importance of food, like, mm-hmm. like uh, making it so dogmatic. I mean, that was one of my concerns uh, with uh, my wife and myself raising our kids was that we were so into the food thing that we were going to create some, you know, eating disorder type issues. Um, and luckily, we didn't, but it, but we came close. I have to say, hmm. um, because you know, it was there was a teen rebellion about well, shit, I'm not going to do anything that you guys do, right? And I don't care how healthy it is, I'm, I'm going to go the opposite direction. Um, and you know, it's tough being a parent cause they, you know, they, they, um, there's lots of books on how to do it, but none of them are, none, none <laughs> well, of them are right. At least been helpful. Yeah. None, yeah. Some of some of them have one or two good tips and that's about it. Right. Um, but, um, uh, this idea about giving your children gluten containing foods, you know, in small doses, I'm, I'm intrigued by that because, you know, you say you've been to a couple of parties and they had some cupcakes and and you hadn't prepared for it but there didn't seem to be any ill effects and i'm just wondering you know if there's a dose sort of a dose response effect when you take a young child and all the all you do is give them gluten containing stuff for years and years and over time it just ravages the 
you know, the gut and the immune system versus having a healthy gut all the time and then having that occasional little minor insult, a hormetic dose of gluten, if you will, um, you know, doesn't, has no ill effect. And it's like, all right, did that. That was fine. Uh, you know, uh, no harm, no foul. Yeah, it, it's really confusing for me. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, if you dig into the literature, there is some there's some research that suggests that like if mom uh, while breastfeeding or even while pregnant is consuming gluten, um, it, it's interesting. There is research that suggests two different potential outcomes. One is that gluten exposure for the mom, uh, both while uh, carrying the baby and while breastfeeding confers um, protection against celiac and gluten sensitivity. But then there is research that suggests the exact opposite, that gluten avoidance confers this this uh, protection. There is definitely uh, research and, and then also um, early gluten exposure. There's some some stuff that suggests that it, it may reduce the frequency of, say, like celiac disease or, or uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But then at the same time, there's a lot of literature that suggests uh, avoiding wheat and dairy specifically dramatically reduces the likelihood of things like type 1 diabetes. And, it, you know, the fact that it's it's kind of all over the place, it, you know, it sounds a lot like cardiovascular disease and a lot of these other complex scenarios. And so I think there's a genetic component. There, there's clearly a gut microbiome component. And the, the bugger of it all for me is that um, you no matter what you do, you feel like you probably made a mistake. And um, and, and that's a really frustrating place to be like the, the one. The one thing that I've told my wife, you can never do to me, you can never stick me in a no-win situation. Like if you want to see me like go Incredible Hulk in a, a pretty quick fashion, it, it's creating the the unwinnable, you know, situation. And in some ways, that that gluten exposure, not gluten exposure, dairy or not dairy, feels like a bit of a, a no-win situation because there there is compelling evidence on both sides, and so it's a bit of a coin toss. How you go with that? Now, all that stuff said, and I don't, I don't want to capitalize this thing, but um, my nephew uh, was raised very similar to my daughter's, uh, uh, little to no gluten exposure. But when he gets exposed, say like if he gets some French fries and those French fries were fried in a fryer with other you know gluten containing items, he's he has the trots for a couple of days. Like it, it really tears him up. So. Uh, uh, Similar early life experience, um, similar exposure, and a very, very different response to a, a gluten dose. Whereas my my kids, if they get some, uh, you know, sweet potato fries, or if we we you know occasionally get some French fries somewhere, and they have been, there is clearly going to be cross contamination. It would make me sick. It would make my nephew Caden sick. But for my girls, it appears to be inconsequential. Interesting. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and 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 confusing and confounding and uh, yes and and yes. frustrating to the point of well you know people out there I'm sure a lot of listeners who you know look to us for the advice okay what do I do guys what do I do how do I do this and in many cases um, you know we don't know and all we can do is kind of give you um, our take on the research and sometimes that research is equivocal. Um, right, like split, like in this case, as you just cited, pretty much split right down the middle. Right. So, um, yeah, but that's look, that's the nature of the of the field that we're in, where ways of eating are more, um, you know, people cling to them more than they do their religion and, and right. defend them for all those reasons. 
Speaking of which, let's uh, move on a little bit tangentially to lectins. Um, mm. Been having a um, kind of a uh, a renaissance uh, in in lectins in my own life. Uh, early on, bought into Lauren's argument, which was pretty compelling that lectins mm-hmm. are you know. <laughs> Plants don't want their babies to be eaten, and so right. these are their defenses. And um, many of these lectins kill other animals. And you know, uh, ricin from the castor bean is the most potent toxin in the world. Uh, so it pretty much soured me on lectins, or excuse me, on legumes for right. a long time, uh, because that was the basic. The connection was that legumes have lectins, and and they're not to be uh, trifled with. Now. Enter the discussion maybe three or four years ago, and, the, and then we started talking about the gut biome, and uh, we started talking about uh, starches, resistant starch, um, fructo-oligosaccharides, um, you know, sort of the, that whole area, uh, which included potato starch and, and um, certainly included legumes. Uh, and now I'm at a point where I'm like, all right, maybe the whole lectin thing was a little bit overdone there might be some some small percentage of the population that has severe issues with them but if you've done a true weston a price um preparation of the of the of the bean in question and followed all of the methods um you know you've basically created a wonderful food stuff that has some resistant starch in it some uh, micronutrients uh, some amount of, of carbohydrate, usable carbohydrate, and some amount of protein. What's your take on legumes these days? Oh, man, very, very similar to you, you know, and it, it, this was one of the, the points of contention that uh, Greg Glassman and I, we would just go around and around on this. He's like, Robbie, how do you, how do you not like beans, you know, and I'm like, the lectins and, and uh, uh, you know, in my experience, someone who has say rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, these autoimmune conditions, they likely will will see significant benefit from removing legumes and and potentially even other high lectin containing foods like nuts and seeds. And we see this kind of reflected in in the modern uh, iteration of the autoimmune paleo type type protocols. But um, when you really do, and you know, I got to give a hat tip to uh, Matt Lalonde when he really started digging into all this stuff and and looked at this whole story just from the nutrient density perspective, which I, I think honestly is the most scientifically credible position to couch any of this stuff. And interestingly, also it uh, paints the modern dietitians into a hell of a corner because all the food they recommend ends up not really fitting the, the, the nutrient density guidelines that they, they are suggesting. But he was like, yeah, man, if you soak and sprout these, these legumes and you don't have overt gut uh, pathology or an autoimmune condition, these things are probably a pretty snazzy, addition to the to the routine and you know for me i've noticed again as i've seemed to have improved both my gut health and my insulin sensitivity um i do quite well with a a variety of lentils um black beans i still don't do great with kidney beans i do a little bit better pinto beans i do fantastic with particularly if i mash them up and throw some lard in them and uh uh, so you know it's uh, interestingly and this is kind of a funny thing um you know, the paleo guy, 
I do better in general with, uh, say, like lentils than I do with sweet potatoes for whatever reason. Like the sweet potatoes, I, I can I can get into a blood sugar roller coaster with those. I can kind of overdo those. And uh, whereas the lentils, um, I, I need to do a pretty heroic effort to overeat them. Now, they've got much more fiber. They have a lot of protein. So there may be some some buffering there. But, uh, you know, I think earlier in my my health you know, uh, transformation, if I still had like some small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and whatnot, all of those nice fermentable carbohydrates could be a problem. And this kind of circles back to the, uh, you know, I suspect a, a significant benefit of a book like yours with the, the keto reset. There are really great arguments for doing a, a low lectin, low fermentable carbohydrate period of time to try to establish a new baseline with the gut microbiome and then reintroduce and slowly ratchet that up and, and see where you you play out. I mean, heck, uh, uh, Atkins used to, to recommend trying to titrate carbohydrates up to the, the point where you, you still didn't show uh, metabolic issues. So that's kind of been my, my evolution on this, this whole thing. And man, I, I have to say like some, some lentils uh, cooked in like a ham hock or something like that or pretty damn good so no yeah. i mean i love to be as inclusive as possible in my diet and and that was part of what got me started on this was this notion that well why would i just cross off an entire category of food um because theoretically it contained um little you know little plant poisons that the plant didn't want me to to consume it just didn't i don't know once i started getting deeply into it it didn't make as much sense as it did originally when we started hearing about all the bad things that lectin can, can, can do. You know, the other thing which I find interesting is the whole FODMAP thing. So the like the FODMAP diet, these are all the foods that you ought to be avoiding if you have gut issues, but they're also all the foods you probably should be eating once you fix your gut issues. Exactly. Yeah. And that that's a ironic state of affairs. And, you know, un, uh, fixing that scenario, fixing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can be a devilishly hard process because on the one hand you want to feed the good bacteria which typically should be living lower in the intestines but if you get an abnormal overgrowth in the small intestine then those carbohydrates have to make it through the small intestine and you're potentially feeding those things and so there's some people like uh, uh, Mike Ruscio, Chris Crusher which are uh, uh, really really good at working with folks with these these conditions but even with these these people who are really kind of uh, world masters at this stuff, it's a challenge. Well, you know, I, um, somebody I know who's very close to me had had some SIBO that they were dealing with, and uh, the the antibiotic they were prescribed wasn't covered by insurance. It was three thousand dollars in Los Angeles. Holy um, smokes! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it starts with an R. I forget the name of it. Uh, you, you'll probably know it, but anyway, because it's like the it kind of the go-to antibiotic for SIBO if you if you want to get started on that program. But wow, yeah. wow. Anyway, um, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. So, um, convince me why I shouldn't eat peanuts. Oh man, you know peanuts are interesting in that if if you just look at the list of allergenic foods. Peanuts pretty consistently win that. You know, you have like eggs, soy, peanuts. Um, man, uh, uh, so peanuts can have a decent aflatoxin load. It's been lots of shenanigans around aflatoxin, but there are some scenarios where it's actually uh, uh, pretty legit. So peanuts can legitimately be a, a decent aflatoxin uh, load. And, um, you know, the when you look at the 
the type of immunogenic proteins that peanuts have. If you look at some scanning electron micrographs of this stuff, they just look mean and angry. I mean, <laughs> they just look like they're they're coming out swinging to kick your ass. And you know, they, purely anecdotal, uh, uh, you know, totally observational, but. We were kind of mixing things up and we had shifted from things like cashew butter and almond butter and uh, tried some peanut butter with the girls. And, of course, they loved it because the best almond butter in the world is not half as good as the worst peanut butter in the world. And that's just kind of the the way it is. That's just the way it is. And I I tell you, the girls absolutely love the peanut butter. I would cut up an apple into slices and then they would scoop peanut butter on it. And both girls, after about two weeks, like they would eat a meal and about an hour later, they're like, Dada, my tummy hurts. Mm. And and, uh, I was kind of like, man, I don't know what's going on. You know, I'd ask them if they needed to poo and, and this and that. And then Nikki said, hey, why don't we pull the peanut butter out? And so we pulled the peanut butter out reintroduced almond butter and cashew butter and no complaints of tummy issues, emptied those jars, tried a new jar of peanut butter. And within about three or four days, both girls were like, dad, my tummy hurts. And so, I mean, again, anecdotal N equals one, you know, the evidence-based medicine people will, you know, be crying for, for me to be burned at the stake for even mentioning this. But, you know, if you, just as a, Funny aside, there's there's no uh, RCT that that proves that dropping a hammer on your foot is going to hurt. But, you know, at some point, your own personal experience can matter in in some degree. So, I mean, I I, that was interesting because I really was trying to, uh, you know, to. You're trying to let I, your kids eat peanut butter like every other parent in the world, like every other parent. And, you know, just every possible reason to let that happen. Right. And uh and, you know, I might have been prone to uh, upending the jar and eating a significant amount of it, too. So, uh, yeah, but that that's kind of been my my story with peanuts. Like from if you look at the research on them, they are highly immunogenic. And then just within our own family, it's caused some problems with the girls. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you say highly immunogenic. I mean, and, and the the allergic response to peanuts is such that I have been on the, in the last year, I've been on three flights where a pre-boarding announcement suggested that if you have peanuts on you, get rid of them, and we're not going to be serving peanuts on the flight because one of the passengers has a peanut allergy. Right. It's, it's literally like one you know molecule of peanut dust in the air is enough to cause complete havoc. Right. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's interesting, but you know that that's another fascinating piece. You know, if we look back at like the 1950s, 1960s. People had peanut allergies, but not remotely at the the degree that we do today. And, you know, is it shifts in the gut microbiome? Is it too much antibiotics? Is it uh, changes in the the breeding methodology with peanuts? Is it all of these things? You know, it's interesting, but this seems to be going in lockstep also just with the the general increase in systemic inflammatory conditions. And, you know, it's uh, it wouldn't be. Uh, crazy to suggest that if you generally increase the inflammation that folks are experiencing, that something like a peanut issue that may have been very mild subacute could be very severe because they're just overall inflamed. Yeah, that's no, that's that speaks to this kind of generalized um, overview that we in the paleo community have had for a long time, which is that oxidation and inflammation are at the root cause of just about everything. Right. Um, and, you know, you could say, well, um, you know, obesity is a is a is a state of inflammation among other states that it is. And um, type two diabetes is a state of inflammation and any type of arthritis is a state of inflammation and 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 so on and so forth. And, yeah, it may be that you're just opening the door to a, a greater 
um, a greater harm because you have that that inflammation um, systemically all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let's talk about uh, macros. I got a question here from one of the readers. Uh, can you guys please talk about this counterintuitive obsession people have with getting perfect macros in every meal or every day? It makes sense to me that we as humans should be able to eat protein by itself, fat by itself, carbs by themselves, and that you don't need a perfect combination uh, of fat, protein, carbs every time you put something in your mouth. Yet a lot of people are glued to these ratios and calculations. I would agree. A lot of people are glued to them. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the the way the question was stated, I would be hard-pressed to even improve upon that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's exactly. A, it's a, a rhetorical uh, question almost. Uh, almost. And, and um, you know, it, Lauren actually did a, a pretty interesting paper. Um, uh, he kind of had a period of time where he was looking at, at say, like some uh, – uh, folkloric or, or, you know, uh, some food trends that we've seen in the past. And so like the food combining story, uh, uh, suggesting that you shouldn't eat starches with proteins and it should be starches and greens, protein and greens. You should eat fruit alone. And he made a bit of a case that that wasn't completely a crazy notion, uh, given the kind of ancestral template that it was unlikely that people were eating these highly complex meals and, and, you know, uh, multiple items at one meal. And so well, I especially suggest fruit, for instance. I mean, imagine right. some ancestral, you know, dude coming across some fruit and thinking, well, you know, just going to eat till I'm full and that's all I'm going to eat. Right. 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 And, it, it, and so I, I think that there's, you know, it's funny because, uh, uh, Man, there's just so many ways to to do it, and and uh, uh, modern cuisine is a really fascinating experience. You know, we we have taken foods from all around the world, mixed and match flavor palettes and seasonings and all this stuff, and and so yeah, the the macronutrient obsession is is kind of crazy in some people, and there's a sense that there is this kind of magic golden ratio, and they. I just don't think that's really the the case. If there's anything to the story, it's intermittency and, you know, periods of uh, feast and famine seem to be really important and, and hitting adequate nutrient intake, which, which includes uh, uh, protein and essential fats and then enough carbs to to uh, keep things going. If you're, you're you know, uh, athletically inclined and whatnot, even though you can be quite fat adapted. So, yeah, I mean, the. I don't know. It, it's just kind of funny. In, in some ways, for a lot of people, I think that they um, they need a really powerful sense of control over what they're eating. And I, I think that that is itself maybe a little neurotic or maybe a little disordered. But for some people, I think that that's what they need to be able to hang on to things. Whereas I, I know for both you and I, like I, I just – I weigh and measure my food every once in a while when I'm trying to make a point on like social media or something like that. But it makes me crazy immediately. Like, so I'm, I'm not surprised that neuroses tracks tightly with uh, uh, too much, you know, scrutiny of one's macronutrients. Yeah. I mean, a couple of years ago, a long time ago, actually, probably 12 years ago, I, I wrote an article on thirst mechanism and I was kind of decrying this whole notion about drinking water all day long and carrying around a jug of water and having to finish off a gallon every day. And my point was that, you know, I think we have humans have a perfect thirst mechanism. And when it's when you're not thirsty, don't drink. Uh, and I've sort of adapted that now to my eating strategy, which is when you're not hungry, don't eat. Um, I've also adapted it to my my overview of uh, the human body as a uh, as a closed system. And I'm going to just go a little bit into the concept here. But 
um, the idea that um, we could go four or five days without eating and not, you know, not tap into a lot of uh, structural material and not destroy a lot of stuff. In fact, in many cases, do a lot of repairs. I mean, we can, you know, you go four or five days if you're keto adapted, you go four or five days without eating, you burn stored body fat, you take some of that, you make ketones, uh, you take some of the, the glycerol off the triglyceride, you make some glucose from it, you recycle amino acids uh, in this wonderful amino acid sink, this pool that you have, and it's literally a closed system that you don't need to introduce any food for days at a time and, and not suffer as a result of that. Would you, first of all, would you agree with that basic concept? And absolutely, yeah. And, and uh, you know, one of the interesting things, uh, there's so much debate around ketosis. Is it the natural human state? Is it not? I would make an argument that ketosis is a very natural human state, but we likely arrived at it through intermittent eating and intense exercise, more so than eating a specific macronutrient ratio. But it, it you, but in the modern world, um, we it, it's we do have the advantage of understanding some biochemistry and physiology, and so if we want to get some of those benefits, then we can look towards, say, like a, a moderate to high protein, uh, limited carbs, appropriate fat intake to be able to to get some of those those perks. Right now, so so with that sort of closed system concept in mind, then it would make sense that who cares whether you get thirty five grams of protein every you know three times a day. Uh, to hit your 105 number for the day, um, I'm, I look more like protein on a week-to-week basis. You know, did mm-hmm. I intuitively get the amount of protein I needed, the amount of amino acids in the in the ratios that I required over the course of a week's worth of eating? And w- one day it might have been 35 grams of protein, another day it might have been 210 grams of protein. But on balance, um, if at the end of the week I haven't lost muscle and my energy is fine then none of that worrying and agonizing over my macros was worth, you know, was worth worrying or agonizing over. Um, right. And this, like I just had three uh, lamb chops for, for lunch, nothing else. It was what I felt like eating. I was, it was phenomenal. It was fantastic. And I moved on and had a meeting after that. And I didn't feel like, oh, because I didn't have a salad or because I didn't have a piece of uh, starch, starchy carb with it, that somehow that was a deficient meal. It was like that worked for me. And um, it hit the spot, and it it was completely satisfying and energizing, uh, and tasty as all hell. And uh, you know, uh, it's it's interesting how people, you know, get so caught up in their macros that they're logging everything that they eat on their, you know, on their uh, on their phone, and 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 at the again at the end of the day, going, oh my god, I didn't I didn't eat enough fat today, or I ate too much fat today, or whatever. And it's like, no, this is really something that happens. Uh, to the human body over the course of weeks, not from meal to meal. Right, right. Yeah. And it, it's a uh, man. Yeah, that, that's just a big topic to unpack. And you did a, a fantastic job on it. And, it, you know, there. I, I guess I would throw out there that there are some people that for whatever reason, they tend to do better with a, a fairly high degree of scrutiny and maintenance on their macros, but the vast majority of people, I would argue, or, or maybe they use it for a period of time to just kind of get their, their head around what, what a serving size actually might be okay with. But, you know, if we're, it, it, you know, that protein leverage hypothesis story where we're, we're, we effectively eat to get adequate protein because 
in the ancestral environment, if we obtained adequate protein, we got adequate nutrition and caloric value, you know, just just baked in the cake. And so if folks really orient things and steer with that eye towards uh, uh, a variety of proteins and then, uh, you know, kind of diversify from there, you usually do pretty damn well. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's ultimately once you've track your macros a little bit, you better, you better start to, you know, become intuitive about it. I mean, otherwise it's like, right. That's what I, that's my dream for everybody in this world is to, is to, is to make decisions on the fly without thinking about them. Um, but make them intuitively and from a, obviously from a knowledge base, uh, to the extent that they feel good about those decisions, even if they were maybe not serving them in the long run, but whether those decisions were, um, uh, you know, uh, made because, oh, it's a cheesecake, man. Why would I not have cheesecake? But certainly made also without guilt, like move on, right? Just make the decision right. with in good conscience, feel good about it, move on, and, and, and you know, enjoy your life. Absolutely, completely agree. Cool. Well, before we, we finish, I, I know you're involved in a film right now. Um, I don't know to the extent to which you've involved, but you hit me up the other day, and I want to, and it was really, it, it was a timely email because, there are all of these movies that are coming out now that are like so negative on the consumption of meat and on the paleo diet and on all the stuff that we know and love and espouse. So um, tell me a little bit about this project. Yeah, it, it, so C.J. Hunt, who did uh, uh, the uh, In Search of the Perfect Human Diet, um, he's been you know kicking the tires on this for – a pretty good period of time. And, um, you know, we, we've been trying to think about, okay, what exactly would you, would you do? What do we, what do we, uh, what's the, what's the stick, you know, what's the angle on this thing? So there've been some, some films as a response to this, right. As a, as a, as a retort. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also just how do you orient the whole thing? Because we, we had like Cowspiracy, which was painting, um, you know, modern, uh, uh, Beef production practices in a in a bad light, which much of it is, you know, much of it is very unsustainable. It's very dirty. Yeah, you know, we we don't really support that stuff. Uh, more decentralization, grass fed, savoriness to polyface farms. But it, then there was a follow up film, uh, What the Health, which um, got in and, and uh, man, it, it just tried to paint. Uh, it, well, they they made claims like um, eating an egg was as injurious as. 15 cigarettes and um, uh, just some pretty over the top stuff. And even vegans, like there was a, a very interesting woman, a vegan dietitian, master's in public health. Uh, she did a, a review of the film and was incredibly critical of the, the claims being made. But they did a really nice job. They had some Leonardo DiCaprio backed uh, uh, funding. The thing looked good, it was super emotive. Uh, they pulled both uh, heartstrings and uh, some political shenanigans, and it, it was really compelling. And, you know, this ethical omnivore scene, which I, I would say the paleo primal ancestral health, you know, world kind of uh, probably, you know, fits under that umbrella. We haven't had any kind of a response to that. And so CJ has been putting together a, a project, and I believe the working title is Dispelling the Lies. And so... He's uh, he's motoring forward on this thing. And so we're getting ready to do some fundraising. He's already had some some private investment and we're we're trying as much as possible to get this uh, money to, to fund this program 
not from the meat producers, not from the dairy producers. Like we're trying to keep that as as a, a non-industry influenced as possible because it, it you know it, uh, some folks are are going to be unswayed no matter how good of a job is done on this. Clearly, you know we we all know that. But if there's any type of industry. Uh, input on this, then that's just a lever for people to to discount the whole thing. But, you know, what CJ is trying to do with this is really a, a pretty global look at everything from the sustainability story to, uh, you know, the, the overall health claims. But but really, I would say the film is going to be heavily weighted in that uh, food production sustainability story like that. That seems to be more kind of the beginning point of what we need. Um, there have been a few pretty well done uh, documentaries that, that folks have, you know, looked at keto and paleo and whatnot, and there's varying degrees of quality there. But there have been some treatments there. We haven't had good treatment of the sustainability story. I mean, and Alan Savory's whole story has been a great story as well. And I, I, I presume that would be part of part of this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, <laughs> Those of us on this side of the fence would go, well, wait, wait, the only way to the only true way to feed the world is by using some sort of, uh, uh, you know, grazing animal uh, to uh, replenish the topsoil so that we could grow more green vegetables. So it's like, what's you know, how do we tell that story in a way that's compelling and and answers the the, uh, for lack of a better term, the lies that are being put forth by this other faction. Right. Yeah, I mean the the vegan story is that that quote. It, it just uh, irks me that they call it plant based. It just seems so mealy mouthed. It's like let's just come out and say vegan. You know, I mean, uh, paleo and primal are plant based. If we're yeah, I'm plant based. I mean, my I, I make a big deal about my keto recent right, diet is right. plant based. Yeah, so it, you know, it's just kind of shifty stuff. But man, they have an incredibly compelling story. Like the, you know, when you think about modern food production and and whatnot, and these uh, big multinational corporations that uh, you know sell everything from tobacco to sugar to to uh, you know feedlot cattle and whatnot, it's a really compelling story. And and there's a a religious fervor around this idea that you're saving the world, and it, it's all very compelling. And I think a lot of the impetus um, is probably coming from a good place. But then, uh, you know, a lot of the suggestions that are being made, like I, I think uh, Richard Branson just donated a bunch of money to the meat in a, in a vat, you know, researchers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Holy smokes. Like, so, OK, we need to now grow some food, process that food to put it into some sort of a syrupy mix to feed meat in the vat. Like that's sustainability. But a, a lot of people think that, the, you know, uh, we will find, quote, technology solutions around this. So this is where a, a film like what CJ is doing, I, I think, is probably the most important thing that any of this ethical omnivore ancestral health world could really uh, put some effort into because the the uh, the plant based message is very compelling and it's influencing governmental decisions. You know, we we if anybody's been around this scene at all, <clears throat> they probably remember Ansel Keys and and uh, cholesterol. And this is an even more um, compelling story because you're you're you know saving the world, and so people have even more religious fervor around it. So, listen, if anybody, if people want to contribute to this, is there a way? Is there a method they can do that now? 
Yes. And uh, I, I think probably the best way to do that, I am looking at the uh, the links to it right now. And they're all bitly links, of course. And so let, let me see if one of these actually has a you, you sent me one today. So, so um, we'll make sure we'll make sure that uh, we have a link at the on the in the show notes. Perfect. Perfect. So we'll we'll take care of that. I just want to be sure that that it was set up for uh, people other than insiders like myself and I saw Nora got involved yep. and a bunch of other people yep. that got involved. It, it, and I know uh, it, it's tough sometimes to uh, you know navigate back to the the parent website. So if people want to look into this, if you just search dispelling the lies, then you'll find the the landing page for this fundraiser. Cool. Cool. All right, anything else, Rob? What's going on? Anything we need to discuss? You know what? Really interesting. I'll tell you it's super quick. Uh, I just got back from a trip to Oklahoma, of all places, and I uh, I had a reach out from the Chickasaw Nation about three months ago. Uh, they want an advisory board to help them develop a uh, effectively like a, a holistic integrated wellness program, and, and they're tackling everything from food production to uh, – Counseling their folks on on proper financial management because uh, poor financial management tends to be the most uh, uh, stressful element of folks' lives. And then uh, clearly within these native populations, type two diabetes, type two diabetes within the the their nation, um, they have a eighty percent obesity rate, something like a sixty sixty eight percent type two diabetes rate among adults. And so they they. Um, They've done very well in that kind of Indian gaming story, but they, it, as wealthy as they are, uh, they're facing the same uh, end game that all of kind of westernized societies are facing: uh, uh, healthcare costs that are increasing at exponential rates, and uh, real systems don't deal with exponentials very well for very long. And so they are investing a massive amount of resource and infrastructure. To uh, to get in and try to help their folks, and I have the the huge honor of of being a participant in in this program, and so uh, just wanted to throw that out there. And you are one of the the folks that they would like to chat with at some point, and I figured you would be amenable to that. But um, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, very very honored for that reach out, and really um, incredibly impressed with with what they have done already, and. Uh, how open they were to the suggestions that that just I made. Like uh, we we had a sit down with some of the dietitians that work in the beautiful hospital that they built in 2010, 2011. And it went largely the way that you would expect talking to most dietitians. Like they were horrified at the suggestion that we might reduce carbohydrate levels in folks that have carbohydrate intolerance. And, and, uh, and I, I told the, the, folks that were on this, you know, discovery board, I said, you guys may need to just completely decouple from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the FDA, like, you know, they get the um, benefit from various programs like SNAP and, and different things. And I, I said, you guys seem to be capitalized well enough that maybe you you do all this stuff in house. And so you make uh, grass fed meat available for people and meals delivered. And we just bypass this whole system. And uh they are appear to be 100% on board with this. So that was a really fascinating weekend. My head is still spinning, but uh, uh, looking forward to seeing what comes of that. I bet. And they're certainly a motivated group. I mean, the, the um, yeah, that, that level of obesity and type 2 diabetes is just uh, is, is almost unfathomable. It's crippling at this point is, is what it is for that, that society. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how that goes. But they um, 
man, they are, are working hard. And also they have a generational view to this. Like they recognize that this is going to be trench warfare and it's going to be a long fought battle. And, and so it's, um, but they're ready for it. They're ready for it. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, keep me posted on that. I will do it. Rob, thanks for joining us today, man. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Mark. Uh, always great hanging out with you. And like I said before we rolled, any day that I have a calendar event that says the Sisson, I know it's going to be a day. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, totally enjoyable. And we'll do it again soon, I'm sure. Um, you listeners, thanks for joining us today at the uh, Malibu Studios, the Primal Blueprint Podcast. We'll see you next time. Stay primal. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.